I'm Scott Weatherly. Welcome to 20th Century Geek. In today's show, we will be talking about one of the best decades in wrestling history, as far as I'm concerned. But it has to be recognised, and I want to highlight that for all the things we'll talk about, all the all the criticisms we'll lay at people's door, or all the adulation, or whatever, I want to be clear that as a wrestling fan, and I sh- I'm hoping I speak for many, many wrestling fans, we all really appreciate the work that all wrestlers do in putting on the best show possible. These guys put their lives on the line. I know it's all cliche, but these guys put their lives on the line. Their bodies go through hell. Um, it's a really hard work schedule. And it's just to say, we appreciate it. It means uh, a lot to us that these guys and girls are willing to do it. And um, as a wrestling fan, thank you very much. Um, that's going with the show. The 1980s were a massive boom period for professional wrestling. Neon costumed, larger than life gimmick characters and slightly silly but morally clear-cut stories. The 80s got the wrestlers it needed and deserved. Hulkamania was running wild and it was brilliant. In the UK, the national wrestling was not as bombastic. ITV's World of Sport provided a very British form of wrestling, which was less glamorous and lacked the budget of the juggernaut that was the World Wrestling Federation, or the WWF. Don't get me wrong, when I was a kid, I loved World of Sport, and the wrestlers were skilled and hard-hitting performers. It was a grittier, slightly grey entertainment in a decade that was drowning in bubblegum pop, loud colours and big personalities. Really, its time had passed, and it was being replaced by the WWF product. When I was very young, I was aware of characters such as Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage, but it was not until the late 80s and very early 90s that I became fully aware of the WWF phenomena. I can vividly remember collecting and swapping the trading cards with my friends at primary school. I knew the wrestlers from the image on the cards, and only a little from the actual wrestling. It wasn't widely available on TV in the UK at this time. I was a world away and so totally unaware of how the WF had grown to a national promotion, swallowing up the regional territories of the 60s and 70s. It goes to show why the WF was such a success during this period. They had created a promotion driven by the gimmicks and characters and not dependent on the actual product within the ring. That's not to say that the wrestling was poor, far from it. During this period there are some amazing workers producing matches that are still standout classics today. If you enjoy wrestling today, go back and watch any match with Ricky Steamboat, Randy Savage, Ric Flair or Rowdy Roddy Piper. These guys pulled off 5 star matches on a regular basis. The point is though that it was a genius idea that took wrestling from barns and small auditoriums to stadiums, national pay-per-views and cross-media success. The WWF is riding high heading into the 90s, with no one, it would seem, to knock them off the top spot. By 1993, everything changed. When looking back at what Vince McMahon was doing in the late 70s and 80s, a clash on the level of the Monday Night Wars was almost inevitable. It was just a matter of who would have the funds to step up and challenge the champ. The challenge came in the form of media mogul Ted Turner and his massive checkbook. Vince and Ted had clashed during the 80s over the use of TV schedules and content, which led to a bitter business animosity. While Vince continued with the growth of the WWF, 
Ted looked for a way to challenge the wrestling monopoly that the WWF had created. He did this with the misfortune of another individual that Vince had also upset with the rapid growth of the WWF, Jim Crockett. Crockett was a wrestling promoter with a strong legacy and who had attempted to compete against the national growth of the WWF throughout the 80s. He had purchased a number of smaller promotions in much the same way Vince had done. However, by the end of the decade, after multiple clashes, including several head-to-head pay-per-view level scheduling battles, Vince came out ahead. Vince was determined to be successful and was willing to risk a lot to do it. During the pay-per-view schedule conflicts, he would threaten pay-per-view companies that they would not be able to carry the WWF programming in the future if they carried Crockett's programs too. With the WWF being the cash cow, they had little choice but to comply. For the events he could not prevent, he produced pay-per-view level events and had them broadcast at the same time as Crockett's pay-per-views events on free cable such as the 1988 Royal Rumble. You have to remember this was a time before streaming, before digital recording and before easily affordable VHS recorders. For the majority of people, if you missed an event, you missed it. So fans had to make a choice. By the time of these conflicts, the WWF brand was strongest in the mind of the fans. By 1990, Crockett was close to broke and had no choice but to sell the promotion he had built up to that point to Ted Turner. At the start of the 90s, Vince and the WWF were standing strong and on the road to being the only national promotion. It was at this point that Ted Turner, using the assets he purchased from Jim Crockett, created World Championship Wrestling, the WCW. With the creation of a direct competitor that had the money to be a real threat, Vince McMahon started taking steps to become something different. The first of these steps was the broadcasting of Monday Night Raw. The first episode aired on January 11th, 1993 from the Manhattan Centre in New York City. The show was broadcast live, the idea being that knowing it was live would add to the feeling of anything could happen. At the same time, Ted Turner was making his own plans, which started with the recruitment of a new promoter and booker, Eric Bischoff. Bischoff had experience in other promotions, but this was a big step up and he was eager to prove himself. Unfortunately, he was not alone and shared booking responsibilities with bookers with an older world view, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes and Arl Anderson. Both men favoured the booking style that had worked so well in the mid to late 80s. It was loud and it was a little cartoonish. The belief was, if it was not broken, don't. A similar style was also being used in the WWF, using the big hitters like Hulk Hogan, Macho Man Randy Savage and the million dollar man Ted DiBiase, as well as other breakthrough stars such as the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. However, this booking style had had its day and the mood of the wrestling watching public had changed. The kids that had watched the WWF in the 80s were older now and wanted to see something a bit more sophisticated and violent. The neon pop of the 80s was being washed out by the grunge scene and a backlash of the excesses of the previous decade had started. Wrestling needed to catch up and adapt fast. By 1994, the winds of change were blowing hard and both WCW and the WWF had to act fast. Early in the year, Eric Bischoff made his stance clear and using the vast Ted Turner piggy bank went on a spending spree, luring the top talent away from the WWF. The first and biggest jump ship were Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. 
both negotiating multi-million dollar guaranteed deals that included creative control for their characters and influence on the stories they would be involved in. This opened the floodgates as many of the wrestlers moved across knowing they could get more lucrative deals with WCW. While this started to put a dent in the WWF talent pool, it was also creating a problem early on that would heavily contribute to the decline and eventual failure of WCW. However, feeling he had the upper hand, Bischoff was ready for what he believed was the final push to put the WWF out of business. After a year of heavy spending and building the WCW brand, Ted Turner agreed to give the WCW a prime time TV slot. But not just any slot. A slot on the channel TNT on Monday night up against the WWF's Monday Night Raw. On September 4th, 1995, the first episode of Nitro was aired. The gloves came off and the Monday Night Wars had just begun. Nitro contained a number of shock moments from the first episode. These included the defection of Lex Luger, one of the prime WWF draws at the time, and the then WWF women's champion Alundra Blaze appearing on Nitro and dumping the belt into a rubbish bin. Each of these shock moments attracted more and more fans, wanting to know what would WCW do next. Each week for the rest of 1995, WCW and WWF would trade barbs, giving away the competitors' results or running parody skits poking fun at the headliners of the other promotion. However, each was still sticking to a formula that had worked for so long. For the most part, they were still relying on the big names that had been fan favourites for almost a decade, with only a few newcomers breaking through. After the departure of Hogan and Savage, the WWF brought back other 80s mainstays, Rowdy Roddy Piper and The Ultimate Warrior, both of which provided a short-term boost to the WWF's ratings, but this was not enough to maintain the advantage, and WCW would lead the ratings for almost two years. The WWF took one last major hit the following year in an incident referred to as the Curtain Call. This is also the first of two meta-events that would set the direction for the WWF for the next six years. To put it in context, I need to explain a couple of things. The first is kayfabe, or the institution depicting wrestling as a real sport to the public. For decades, maintaining kayfabe was rule number one. Wrestlers would go to extraordinary lengths to protect the industry. Small things such as maintaining character whenever in public, or more severe things like injuring or punishing young guys looking to break into the industry. If they came back, they might earn enough respect to deserve being trained. The second is that the wrestling industry includes a lot of travelling, driving or flying from event to event and spending nights in hotels away from family. Under these conditions, it's best to have a group of friends to travel with, like-minded people who can keep you sane and organised, making sure you are in a fit state to wrestle. Read any of the many wrestler biographies and you'll be regaled with a flood of stories about trying to break into the industry and spending weeks on the road. One of these groups was called The Click. It was made up of Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Shawn Michaels, Paul Levesque and Shawn Waltman. You may know them better as Diesel, Razor Ramon, The Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels, Triple H and X-Pac. The group had a measure of influence in booking, and it has been suggested that they wield it to further their own careers, even at the expense of others. In 1996, kayfabe was still a core element of the wrestling industry, 
but on a non-televised show at Madison Square Garden, the last WWF event for Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, it would be ignored in front of a sell-out crowd. Kevin Nash and Shawn Michaels were the main event, and following the finish, the two competitors were joined by Scott Hall and Paul Levesque. Two bad guys and two good guys in the ring together? Would it kick off into a rumble? No. The four men embraced and acknowledged a friendship that was supposed to be kept from the public. They broke kayfabe in a very public way, and someone was going to pay. The WWF had lost two of its biggest draws in Nash and Hall, so they could not be punished. Shawn Michaels was still one of the biggest names in the promotion, and punishing him would only punish the promotion. So the penalty fell to Paul Levesque, who was removed from key shows for a period of time and lost out on a main event push. So why is this event so important? Well, primarily it pushed the WWF to break its reliance on established stars, while solidifying WCW's need to keep said established stars happy, inflating the promotion's payroll even further. Not being able to compete financially, Vince McMahon had to find other ways of boosting the WWF's popularity. Losing Nash and Hall can be seen as the final straw that pushed Vince to start promoting riskier, more mature content. A step towards what would soon be called the Attitude Era. The second was a byproduct of Levesque's punishment. Needing to find a replacement for the main event push, Vince turned to a wrestler that had joined the promotion earlier in 1996, but who had struggled with the character he had been given. However, around the time of the curtain call, he dropped his character and created his own. The gimmick was more ruthless, more cold-blooded. He was no longer the ringmaster. He was stone-cold Steve Austin. And within 12 months of the curtain call, he would be the promotion's number one guy. Finally, it led to the creation of the two most well-received factions in wrestling history. While the punishment delayed Levesque's main event status, it did not prevent it. Just over a year after this event, Shawn Michaels and Levesque formed a defining team of the WWF's Attitude Era, Degeneration X, or DX. They were a group of anti-establishment frat boys looking to humiliate the management and have some fun. However, DX were not the only or the first outlaw group. When Nash and Hall moved to WCW, they joined forces with old friend Hulk Hogan. Fans were thrilled to see these three big hitters in the ring together again. However, in July 1996, they shocked WCW's fans by turning on the crowd and the promotion and establishing themselves as the promotion's New World Order, or the NWO. These two groups became the front line in the war between the two promotions. This would be taken beyond a metaphor on the 27th of May 1998 when DX invaded a WCW recording riding an armoured jeep. A year after the curtain call, WWF and Vince McMahon instigated the second meta event at the 1997 Survivor Series. This is what is referred to as the Montreal Screwjob. So, for almost a decade, Bret Hart had been loyal to the WWF and become a mainstay in the top tier of talent. However, his contract with the WWF was coming to an end, and as part of Bischoff's continued effort to cripple the WWF, he received a very lucrative contract offer. It was understood that after his loyal service, and the fact that Vince may not have actually been able to offer a competing contract, his leaving was inevitable, and would hopefully be amicable. There are several versions of the events that led up to the screw job from the people involved. 
However, the overview is that early talks between Brett and Vince started out amicably, especially as Brett was holding the WWF title at the time. Brett made it clear that he was willing to drop the title to anyone Vince asked him to, just not at Survivor Series, which was taking place in Brett's home turf, Canada. It has been recorded that this was agreed and the title would be dropped the next night on a TV taping. Survivor Series arrived and Brett was due to fight Shawn Michaels. Yep, him again. The pay-per-view was going well, but there was a tension backstage. Vince was more involved in backstage arrangements than usual, being very visible. Finally, the time came and Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels hit the ring. After several minutes, Vince appeared at ringside. It was clear that something was different. Something was about to change. After some back and forth in and out of the ring, Shawn Michaels takes Bret Hart to the ground and starts to apply a move called the Sharpshooter, a Bret Hart signature move. Suddenly the referee turns to the announcer and declares that Bret Hart tapped and that Shawn Michaels is the new WWF Champion. The crowd went wild as it is clear that this was not the intended finish to the match. No one is more shocked and angered than Bret Hart himself, who spits in Vince McMahon's face and proceeds to destroy the ringside area. Bret leaves for WCW and continues his career for a time until he is put out of action by a severe concussion from Bill Goldberg. Back in the WWF, morale is low, and the roster has started to lose faith in Vince. However, Vince is able to turn almost any problem into money. In a case of art imitating life, he runs with the animosity that has grown and creates an exaggerated version of himself. He becomes the boss. Acknowledging that he owns the promotion and is in charge, within weeks he is letting it loose out in the ring. This new version of Vince will start feuding with the WWF's number one star, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Blue Collar Rebel vs White Collar Boss. The fans lapped it up, and despite the ratings losses, the WWF was on its way to coming out on top. A long teased match between Austin and McMahon finally took place on April 13, 1998, and the WWF finally beat WCW in the ratings. Both the curtain call and the Montreal screw job could have been devastating for the WWF. However, with the support of, of a great writer, Vince Russo, Vincent Mann was able to turn both these negative events into gold. While it is not possible to say exactly what would have happened if these two events hadn't occurred, it is possible to suggest that stars such as Stone Cold, Triple H, The Rock or Mick Foley would not have been able to reach the heights they did. Yes, WCW had acquired the majority of the heavy hitters from the previous 15 years, but in reality, this had cleared the decks in the WWF and was allowing them to enter a new era with this younger, more aggressive talent. These events may not have instigated, but they definitely necessitated the move to the Attitude Era. For WCW, it had also created a massive guaranteed wage bill, while losing creative control of the wrestlers that needed to generate the income to fund that wage bill. So, ironically, the actions Bischoff took to cripple the WWF actually led to a new creative heights for Vince McMahon, while financially crippling WCW and Ted Turner. Entering the last years of the decade, the tide had turned, and the WWF was gaining more and more ground. The Attitude Era was a more aggressive than action-packed. Managed by head writer Vince Russo, the WWF started to introduce what can be referred to as Car Crash TV. Shorter matches, more punchy promos, and leaning more on a soap opera style storytelling. 
None of this was new for wrestling, but the WWF was also taking a lead from another promotion that had established a smaller but dedicated fan base. So far we have discussed the events that surrounded the WWF and WCW. However, they were not the only promotions causing waves in the wrestling industry in the 1990s. It's not possible to cover this period without mentioning the third option, Extreme Championship Wrestling, ECW. ECW was created out of Eastern Championship Wrestling in 1994, following a dispute with then-struggling National Wrestling Alliance, the NWA, and Jim Crockett, who was back and trying to climb the ladder to a national promotion once again. When the NWA tried to prove they still had some power in the wrestling industry, the then owner, Todd Gordon, and booker, Paul Heyman, decided to make a very public statement. At an NWA Championship tournament, the title was to be won by Eastern Championship Wrestling star Shane Douglas. However, Gordon and Heyman had already persuaded Douglas to throw down the belt after winning it, which he did, declaring the NWA a dead promotion, which in all ways that matter, it was. Soon after Todd Gordon announced that Eastern Championship Wrestling would ignore any threats from the NWA and would from that point on be known as Extreme Championship Wrestling. ECW, being booked by Paul Heyman, understood that it could not compete with the big budget promotions WCW and the WWF. So Heyman decided to find a niche, the fan base that was looking for something different, something less mainstream. Heyman was able to deliver in spades. The promotion became known for a hard-hitting, gritty and violent style of match, which would often involve weapons and became known as Hardcore. However, to pigeonhole the promotion as just a hardcore show sells it so short. It also introduced some of the first Mexican, Lucha Libre, Japanese and pure technical wrestlers to America. It was a promotion in which wrestlers could be themselves without being forced to use a gimmick, and fans lapped it up. For several years, despite smaller TV exposure, its fan base grew because of tape trading and the burgeoning internet community. The popularity grew so quickly and widely that the heads of both WCW and the WWF took notice. However, it was Vince and the WWF that made the first move to try and cash in on the extreme fans. In 1997, ECW wrestlers invaded a WWF event and interfered in a match, sparking a story in which wrestlers would trade and perform on each of the promotions. It gave ECW exposure to mainstream fans while not diminishing their gritty independent product and allowed the WWF to gain some credibility with the more hardcore fans. From a fan perspective, it was a win-win situation. Backstage, however, some workers were not so impressed. In ECW, despite the additional exposure, there were a few who felt that it was a step towards selling out on all the hard work that they had done to create such a unique promotion. Some of the traditionalist wrestlers in WWF disliked the extreme style of ECW and believed that working with them tarnished the reputation of the WWF. Regardless of these feelings, the cross-promotion was a huge success. ECW continued with its promotion, maintaining its specific fanbase as a third option. Nonetheless, it was not exempt from the tactics of the Monday Night Wars. In the year 2000, the ECW heavyweight champ Mike Awesome was wooed away by WCW's checkbook. Awesome appeared on WCW Nitro with the ECW belt. Bischoff did not want any competition. But getting back to the big two, 
By late 1998, the WWF was maintaining a much higher viewership than the struggling WCW. Much of the creative control was in the hands of a small group of wrestlers such as Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash, who by the, this point were leading competing NWO factions, neither wanting to concede to the other, resulting in repeated interference finishes and ring invasions. This may have worked a couple of times, but the audience was getting tired of the constant lack of resolution. WCW attempted to boost ratings with further short-term tactics, such as the introduction of former NFL star Bill Goldberg as an unstoppable powerhouse, bringing 80s legend The Ultimate Warrior back, and having cheap champions like actor David Arquette, who was promoting the WCW-produced film Ready to Rumble. These did create short boosts, but it was not enough to gain former levels of popularity, and the final nail was about to be slammed home. On January 4th, 1999, the WCW attempted another short-sighted tactic. It gave away the main event results of Raw is War, airing at the same time, that Mick Foley, as Mankind, would be winning the heavyweight title. The assumption being that viewers would not need to change channel knowing the result. Unfortunately, it had the exact opposite effect, and a large portion of the viewing audience did change channel to see Foley defeat The Rock for the WWF title. Once they had seen the win, they turned back to WCW just in time to witness more awful booking. Kevin Nash, leader of the good NWF faction and WCW champion, was to face Hulk Hogan, leader of the bad NWO. As the match was about to start, the atmosphere was electric. This was a pay-per-view level match that was about to happen on Nitro. What actually happened was not pay-per-view level entertainment. As the two giants were about to do battle, Hulk Hogan poked Kevin Nash in the chest and down he went, staying down for the count of one, two and three, giving the title to Hogan once again and reforming the original NWO. This incident is often referred to as the finger poke of doom and the moment WCW became a bit of a joke. While WCW would continue promoting for a further two years, the quality of shows and the number of fans willing to watch steadily declined. To put it in some context, in 2000, WCW lost its parent company, Time Warner, $62 million. And most of this was due to the incredible wage bill and the continued high production cost of Monday Night Nitro. By 2001, Time Warner were no longer willing to foot this bill, and made it clear that they wanted to sell. Initially, Eric Bischoff's Fusion Media Ventures announced they were going to purchase WCW. The basis of the deal was that while Bischoff would own the company, it would maintain its TV presence on TNT and TBS. However, during negotiations, Time Warner changed management, and the new CEO removed WCW from all channels. Following this move, Bischoff dropped out of the deal. WCW was dead, and WWF had won the Monday Night Wars. But there was one final act of war yet to come. Being the only person that did not need to rely on Time Warner for TV coverage, Vince McMahon made an offer and purchased the WCW back catalogue, hundreds of hours of TV coverage and 25 selected contracts for only $3 million. 
Let me remind you of the WCW financial losses in the last few years, which were around 60 plus million a year. In addition to this, Time Warner remained responsible for fulfilling the wage requirements of several wrestlers, even after the promotion's assets had been sold. As far as Time Warner and Ted Turner were concerned, despite some high points, WCW ended up being a financial and creative disaster. On March 26, 2001, the final Nitro was aired. It was opened by Vince McMahon to show that he had won. He stood in front of the WCW fans as a victorious general, gloating over the spoils of war. The show continued as normal with several title matches that were, and was ended with a second appearance of Vince McMahon. Despite wanting to gloat, Vince McMahon is not one to let reality get in the way of a good angle. This appearance was interrupted by his son, Shane McMahon, who announced that a McMahon had purchased WCW, but it was not his father, kicking off the invasion storyline that would last the next 12 months and result in the complete removal of the WCW brand from television completely. To summarise, the wrestling industry entered the 1990s continuing the neon superhero gimmick styles and storylines of the 80s. The WWF was riding high on a national monopoly. So why fix what isn't broken? This may have seemed like a success, but the WWF had re reached a creative plateau and the fans that had run wild with Hulkamania were growing, growing up and looking for something grittier and more sophisticated. A change in style and direction was forced by the creation of WCW and the start of the Monday Night Wars. This period of competition pushed both companies to try more and more creative and edgier spectacles. This led to some of the most entertaining TV of the mid and late 1990s and established several pop culture milestones and icons. These were the result of interesting booking and performances. However, the focus on producing a product that would beat the competition on a weekly basis did not drive long-term business thinking and resulted in the near financial collapse of the WWF and the actual financial and creative collapse of WCW. I strongly believe that the short-sightedness and lack of real business acumen of Eric Bischoff, as well as unclear long-term creative and business objectives for WCW by Time Warner, created a business model that was designed to burn bright but burn out quickly. The WWF had the advantage of Vince's experience from the previous 15 years of creating the national exposure of the WWF. By the late 1990s, this was supported by a willingness to let some of the best talent in the industry loose, but, mainly, but maintaining a creative control of the direction of the entire promotion. As fans, this was a great time to be watching wrestling and seeing it gain mainstream attention and cross-media exposure. However, it could not last. But the booking style and use of elements from other TV shows established during this period has become a mainstay of wrestling promotions across the world today. So if you are a fan of the current WWE promotion and you want to understand how the WWE became what it is today, you need to check out this period in wrestling history. And that's the bottom line, because Scott Weatherly said so. Thank you for joining me. And I hope you return next month for our very Merry Christmas series that's going to be a Shane Black Christmas. We're going to go back and we're going to review the films of Shane Black that he sort of sets at Christmas. Lethal Weapon, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight and The Last Boy Scout. 
So I hope you join me. And if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at 20th Century Geek. I'm on Facebook again at 20th Century Geek. And I am now on Instagram as well under the same 20th Century Geek. And if you wish to email me directly, please email me at 20th Century Geek at gmail.com. Thank you very much. And I hope to see you soon. Yeah.